Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, and I'm joined here today by Robbie Suave. He is a senior editor with Reason Magazine, and I'm joined also by my boss, Greg Lukianoff, a repeat attendee on this show. (laughs) He is the president and CEO of FIRE. Both of you, welcome onto the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, I'm really excited to be on with Robbie. He's a great guy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I, and we've been doing this for four and a half years, Robbie, and I haven't had That's you ridiculous. on, so I apologize for that. That is ridiculous. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> How dare us, indeed. But we're having you on for this uh, very special, isn't really the Oof. right phrase to use, but this very consequential podcast to discuss the events of last week, of course, on January 6th where a group of rioters stormed the United States Capitol. Uh, the Capitol is only a few blocks from FIRE's offices here. Greg lives nearby. I live nearby. And Robbie, you were actually at the riot. I don't think you were participating in the riot, but you were outside as it happened. Yeah, right? what was that uh, I, like? I live nearby as well. Uh, we should all get drinks sometime, I guess. Um, yeah, I, uh, really a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I heard, you know, I saw on social media what was happening. So I went down to uh, to report on it for reason. I wrote an article for reason about it. Uh, it was just a travesty. It was a utterly insane scene of chaos and violence. Uh, windows were smashed. Doors were uh, busted open. Um, people had been attacked. By the time I got there, people were, were you know, roaming the halls of the Capitol. Um, there was tear gas or some kind of chemical irritant that someone had sprayed. I'm not actually quite clear if it was the police or if it was some of the rioters. And because it was so windy, there was a big cloud of that that was actually like blowing back on the larger crowd of people who were not actually doing anything wrong. We're just there, you know, legally protesting. Uh, and I got, I got that in the face. That was not pleasant. That was a horrible, wow. horrible feeling. Um, so yeah, it was bad. Were you there for the speech too, for the no. speech uh, near the White House? No, I, I, I watched the speech later. Uh, I read a transcript of it. Um, you know, I, I think it was, <laughs> I think it was pretty terrible um, stuff uh, from, from the president. I think I, I would use, I, Incitement obviously is is you know a, a legal term. I don't think it, this would be incitement in that sense, but I think he clearly egged on um, the people who went and did that. Yeah, and the, and this is where I, I I need to chime in because it's it's kind of funny. We've gotten a couple people. I've been very vocal about this. I live on Capitol Hill. I've got a three and a five year old. Um, we wanted to get out of town because because we the city saw this coming. We, we um, Mayor Bowser actually activated 340 National Guard, just those weren't the people protecting um, protecting the Capitol. So, like, we knew something bad was coming. Um, but, you know, some people have been asking, my, you know, what our position is on it. And I, I, I think the position is so blazingly obvious. But just to say it, you know, um, what happened at the Capitol was not anywhere close to protected speech. That was violence. Uh, and I, I want to be this very clear. Violence is not an extreme form of expression. It is completely separate from uh, from protected speech. The theory of free speech is that you solve things peacefully through debate and discussion rather than dueling or actual combat. So this 
was complete, you know, like you said, a complete travesty. We have also been asked about students expressing support for the um, uh, for, for the attack on the Capitol. Uh, you can actually say things like you thought that was a good that was good. I'd be horrified. I'd, I'd, I'd like to see how, you know, if you can get a date again on, on, on a campus after saying that. But that is protected speech as well. And really, the the one thing that, that people keep on coming back to is whether or not this meets the very difficult well, what the president did meets the very difficult Brandenburg incitement um, standard. And I know very smart people who think this if this if this didn't nothing does and i also know a, a lot of first amendment lawyers who think it doesn't quite get there um but at the same time the the unquestionable absolute insanity that we saw on the capitol is just unlike anything i ever thought i'd see in my lifetime yeah the brandenburg standard it has a couple of prongs uh, the speech must be directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and the speech is likely to incite or produce such action. We can go into the Brandenburg no. standard a bit if we all want. <laughs> I, I want to talk. I, wanna, um, I, I just wanted to say my piece on that because I really want to hear about um, uh, Robbie's forthcoming book, because one of the interesting things, because one of the things that you, that, that um, First Amendment gives really great, great guidance on is and a lot of these issues are actually very clear cut. You know, um, can Twitter remove someone from their uh, from, from their platform? Yes, absolutely. And, the, and they um, and can, you know, Amazon decide not to host uh, the parlor? They can. But this is exactly the kind of stuff that you, you're always afraid of is going to happen in the time of a, of, of a national emergency is suddenly uh, you're going to have all these institutions um, just dropping entire, yeah, just completely eliminating entire forums like parlor. And that's that's very, very troubling. Yeah, so some context for our listeners who haven't been paying attention to the news the past couple of days. Twitter initially suspended President Donald Trump's uh, personal account for something like 12 hours. He came back, he put two tweets up when he was back, and then he was permanently suspended. I don't know what it means to be permanently suspended instead of banned, but that's what they're calling it. They're calling it a permanent suspension. And Twitter's uh, statement about the permanent suspension was that after a close review of recent tweets from the real Donald Trump account and the context around them, specifically how they are being received and interpreted on and off Twitter, we have permanently suspended the account due to the risk of further incitement of violence. So, And if you continue to read their statement, which can be found on Twitter's blog, they really lean into how the audience had been interpreting President Trump's two recent tweets after his initial suspension, rather than anything he necessarily said himself that was a clear-cut incitement to violence. And then Donald Trump, in response, um, issued a statement through his social media director, I believe his name's Dan Scavino, and that statement said, Twitter may be a private company, but without the government's gift of Section 230, they would not exist for long. I predicted this would happen. We have been negotiating with various other sites, and we'll have a big announcement soon. While we also look at the possibilities of building our own platform in the near future, we will not be silenced. Twitter is not about free speech, free speech in all capitals. There, Facebook followed Twitter and banned Trump. Apple and Google made it impossible to download Parler on smartphones. Parler is the social media app that a lot of people have been going to. A lot of conservatives, I should say, or right-wing uh, individuals have been going to uh, to flee what they perceive as Twitter censorship. And then the, maybe the biggest thing, and I think the thing that worries most uh, free speech advocates, is that 
Apple or Amazon Web Services stopped hosting Parler. So when Donald Trump says, you know, there's talk of building their own platform, those platforms need to be hosted somewhere. And one of the biggest hosting sites in the United States is Amazon Web Services. So if Amazon isn't going to host your website, uh, there are a few alternatives, of course. But what happens if those go by the wayside? So you're going to build your own hosting site. And this is why we wanted you on, Robbie, as Greg mentioned, is because you are just finishing up a book about Section 230 and the debate surrounding free speech and technology companies. So I, we wanted to get your you know, take on everything that's happening. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a lot, <laughs> a lot going on. Um, you know, and I, you know, I really appreciate you guys and obviously the work uh, FIRE does, which is about, you know, not just um, free speech in the strictest legal sense, but the broader culture of free speech and defending those norms legally when appropriate, but just but advocating for a kind of culture and a kind of society that values different perspectives and thinks, um, thinks truth and good things emerge from having difficult conversations and for generally platforming speech. So I can, you know, look at what happened to Parler and be quite troubled, frankly, about a, a kind of simultaneously takedown on multiple fronts that really, you know, totally shuts them down. And, uh, and I am broadly concerned about that and against that without, but at the same time noting that all, all of those companies that, that treated Parler that way are, are private entities. And as long as their contractual arrangements with Parler were not violated, maybe they were actually just before I started talking to you, I saw something about uh, that, that maybe Amazon had, had said, they have to give 30 days notice or something, and they hadn't. I don't know if that's true. So there, there could Yeah, Parler filed a right. lawsuit just before we right. hopped on. This, and I should note for our listeners, we're going to try and get this out the same day the podcast comes out, but this is fast moving and the facts are changing. So please be aware that we might not have all the facts by the, uh, or by the time you get to listen to the, the, this conversation. The, the important point I, I uh, usually make with Section 230 is that it's just bit, so Section 230 being the, the, the statute, the law, the, the, governs some of these um, kinds of platform moderation publisher distinctions uh, that a lot of people talk about in a way that is just wrong. You hear a lot of this particularly from, I think, Republican political figures lately that, well, you know, you're a publisher or a platform, and if platforms choose to engage in moderation, you know, if they're kicking, if they're silencing conservatives, well, then they're not platforms anymore. They're publishers, and they shouldn't be entitled to the protections that Section 230 gives you. Section 230 uh, protects social media companies from being sued for libel, things like that. Um, but actually, Section 230 does not make that kind of a distinction. Uh, it, it very much says explicitly in the text of the law that a that a social media company a platform does not lose its kind of designation as a platform it doesn't it doesn't suddenly take on liability if it chooses to engage in some moderation so really the protection there in the law is is very and you can be against that you can say that should be changed or reformed but as the law exists currently it very clearly borderline inarguably says Twitter can't. We Twitter can take down stuff. It cannot take down stuff. Blah blah blah. So and so. And 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 they're they're still protected by Section two thirty if they do that. So to dumb this down to the very basic levels for our listeners, Facebook, for example, everyone's familiar with the Facebook news feed. I post a status on there. My friends then comment on the status. Section two thirty protects Facebook if one of the commenters on my status 
defames one of the other commenters. Right. Uh, who'd be you could sue them, you could or, sue the commenter, or, you yeah. couldn't sue Facebook. Yeah, and as Charles Cook, who was the last guest on this podcast, told me when during our interview last week, he said, all Section 230 does is ensure that the lawsuits for defamation are directed at the right person. Facebook didn't defame you in the comment section. The other commenter might have defamed you. Right. And, and this is, and, and it's important to point out that this is different than, you know, the way a, 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 like a book publisher works though, right? My, if my book is defamatory, if it makes some, some claim, you could sue me for it. And you could also sue Simon & Schuster. Uh, you can sue me and Reason Magazine, uh, but you can't sue me and Facebook for something I write on Facebook because Facebook is, an, is a social media company. It's an internet service company, and it has Section 230 protection. Now, you can't sue uh, in the comments at Reason.com. That, that gets covered, but uh, that's, the, that's, the sort of, that's the difference that Section 230 uh, uh, creates, that some, some, I think, sharper critics on the right, at least, are reacting to and saying, well, should it be different? Um, Wouldn't there be more rod- moderation if Section 230 got uh, dismantled? Yeah, absolutely. Wouldn't you think Facebook would be more interested in policing what people say rather than? Yeah, this? absolutely. That and that's that's a big point of of, of uh, what my book argues. Um, right. So this this is a statute that uh, that 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 protects these companies from in, from from risk. So if you take that away, all of a sudden. They're going to. They would be so much um, uh, more wary of like edgy speech or things that would get them in trouble. And also, the bigger platforms, which already have armies of content moderators, would be in better shape to deal with that increased risk. Whereas someone like Parler would get just wiped off the map. Yeah, it's it's in, uh, it allows for entrenched businesses, businesses that have much more. Uh much more capital to crowd out the uh, the in, in my conversations with people at Facebook and Twitter and some of the research I was doing, it actually became clear that Facebook is getting more on board with uh, changes to 230, which it might be because they feel like they have no choice. They're getting hammered from both sides, et cetera. Uh, but Mark Zuckerberg at the hearings has, has given more ground on saying Section 230 should be reformed uh, or could be reformed than Twitter has. And... Uh, Twitter is the smaller competitor. Twitter has 1,500 content moderators. Facebook has 15,000. So who is going to be better off in a situation where they are forced to do more content moderation because you took away their risk protection? What, what do we make of, you know, there's, there's obviously a distinction between the Facebooks and the Twitters and the social media of the world and the other tech companies like Amazon Web Services. Uh, you know, Section 230 wouldn't do anything to Amazon Web Services, right? So what's the argument that these companies might have, these social media companies like Parler might have against being deplatformed by Amazon Web Services? Right. Yeah. I mean, they don't have, they don't have any, it would, it would have to be a contractual argument that they did something wrong and how they treat and how that company treated them. Um, With something like, you know, Amazon, you, you get closer to, I mean, there's, you know, some people are making monopoly arguments or antitrust arguments against some of these bigger tech companies, that those are totally distinct, really, from the free speech concerns or the Section 230 concerns or their political bias, right? Because that's not going to be the basis. There's no, there's no antitrust history of, of, of engaging it for that reason. Yeah, and, the, and the, the same discussion or considerations would be in play with the Google Play App Store and the Apple App Store not, no longer hosting uh, Parler's apps. 
So, how, I mean, how should we think about these social media companies? Are they utilities in the traditional sense? I mean, is the only distinguishing characteristic now that they don't need like, physical space in order to send their wires to your home? Yeah, they're, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, this is a new, these are new technologies. So we're still kind of working out what laws should apply. Do we need new kind of laws to, to deal with them? I tend to sort of recoil a little bit at the at the um well some of the monopoly arguments or some of that kind of thing because it, it, the idea of like the the scary thing about a monopoly right in a in a theoretical sense is they take control of the market and then they raise the prices because they have no competition and they harm the consumer in that way there has to be a consumer harm basis um are any of us like harmed by 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 facebook or by google or by like they don't charge for the service um, and the service is good. And if you don't like it, you can just not use it. So it doesn't, it, their power doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to correlate with some harm to the consumer, which is why, which is ultimately why I think some of the, some of the, those concerns just are misplayed. I mean, it, really they're allowing for unprecedented more speech than ever before. If I'm, you know, think back to, you know, I don't know, two decades ago, even the, my opportunities to engage in speech were so much more limited than they are today. So the growth of these big, of these you know big tech, of these social media platforms, haven't actually, even though they make moderation decisions, I I don't, I, I frequently disagree with and frequently criticize. Um, it doesn't seem like the the ability to engage in speech is is contracting. Very much the opposite. How how should we think about disinformation on these platforms? Yeah, it's. Uh... It's interesting, right? Because especially during the the pandemic, um, during the election, there's been a a I think some sentiment among uh, moderators at Facebook and Twitter that they have to they have to do something to control that from the platform itself has to label these things as false or take them down. And again, that's all well and good because they're private companies; they can do that if they want. But you get into a problem then that you 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 make yourself look, you being the platform, make, make yourself look hypocritical when there's all this other <laughs> false stuff that no one has done anything about. And that's the problem, right? That's the problem with moderation because all the stuff goes up and then algorithms catch some stuff and they take it down. Some users complain and then there's moderation decisions and that stuff gets taken down. But it's not like everything, it's not everything is, ne is not being adjudicated all at once. So plenty of stuff that's just not attracted anyone's notice or hasn't gotten flagged by an algorithm is up, even though it's equally in violation of whatever policy this other thing that got taken down is in violation of. So it's, it's always, and it always will be trivially easy to say, well, you did this, but why didn't you do you know, this about this other speech? And that is like a problem that social media companies can't solve because there's so much content. Um, and it, it, it's, uh, I mean, even with the, right, with the, you could say that with the, um, the action against Trump. Um, I, I think the suspension made, uh, the 12 hour suspension or whatever it was, made, it was perfectly defensible. Um, I'm a little bit more on the fence about the permanent ban. Uh, but then you can look at, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini still is able to post on Twitter uh, when, when Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, was asked about the Ayatollah's tweets at a, at a, one of the hearings, he said, and yeah, the Ayatollah has, you know, tweeted things that are violent in con in, in uh, content about the state of Israel, Zionism, etc. 
And uh, Jack Dorsey said, well, that's just saber rattling. So we didn't take action against that. And it starts to be like, a, well, that's just saber rattling. But what Trump does is not saber rattling. So you, that's, that's the, they invite themselves, I think, in, in many cases, credible charges of hypocrisy. Well, that's the thing we always said about campus free speech codes uh, or campus speech codes is that they depend for their very existence on double standards. You know, to the extent that you are banning hate speech on campus, you need to make a determine what termination what hate speech is. And, you know, as the Supreme Court has pointed out, everyone's def- definition of hate speech is different. So, you know, you, you get into these absurd uh, scenarios where you are, you know, banning a, a Trump supporter because their speech is allegedly hateful, but you're, you're not banning this or that, um, you know, social justice advocate who is complaining about whiteness or white people um, on their, on their platforms. What would you do if you were a social media company uh, to address speech on your platform? Because, I mean, you want to create a community for people, right? And you don't, you, you know, if you're creating a community, you probably don't want pornography. You probably don't want animal crush videos inundating the platform. Uh, do you just ban those outright? And then how do you ad- ad- address hot button political issues or ideological issues that are not so clear cut as, for example, crush videos or videos of violence or pornography? The, the best thing platforms can do is establish just very, very clear terms of service, clear rules for what you can and cannot post and don't use vague language um, so that you can, then when you do take something down, you can point to it and say, see, it does violate our actual policy. Um, Clearly they have to do, so the parlor approach, and even parlor wasn't quite following this, but it it doesn't work. You have to do some amount of content moderation um, or else you just become a cesspool. Online for- <laughs> or MySpace with <laughs> all their HTML uh, tweaks they allowed you to make. Yeah. I'll, you know, it's, it's funny, though. I've been thinking about MySpace because a lot of the anti-tech arguments are, well, so no one could ever arise as a competitor to, as a competitor to Google. But Google itself arose that way as a competitor to, 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 uh, to Internet Explorer. Um, uh, like us. Uh, and, yeah. And, uh, and uh, 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 MySpace totally... Uh, totally got crushed by Facebook for no other reason than Facebook was just better. MySpace was slow. It was glitchy. It had uh, it actually part of its, I think its deal with Google that all the ads it had to have. Uh, it just, it went south and Facebook was better. And also MySpace was like, no, we're going to be just a community about music. And Facebook was where, yeah, we're a community for college students. And then they decided, actually, we'll evolve past that and be a community for everyone. And that ended up working. So you can like, it's not, it shouldn't be inconceivable that, that the, like I, these platforms are not, I, I don't buy that, oh, there's nothing could ever challenge them. They're just going to be so big and powerful the way they are now forever. Um, but anyway, that's a side tangent. Um, yeah, these content moderations are, are hard. They need to have clear rules. They, they, they do. They just, they should, it makes sense to, take action against um, calls to violence. Uh, 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 pornography, if you don't want to have pornography, some platforms are happy to have pornography. Um, you, you, but you, you, have to, you have to take action when it appears against um, a lot of the stuff that was on Parler, but I don't know that you, but taking down Parler itself seems, uh, seems actually it's possibly counterproductive. I read this study, I'm going to be writing about this later today. I read a study just last week, uh, and I wrote about a little bit in my book, that felt that um, uh, a, a terrorist, uh, the Islamic State specifically, 
their use of social media tended to get their plots foiled because they're caught more often if they do that. So there's some <laughs> amount of, I'm, like, I'm sure it makes it easier for law enforcement, even the people involved in the Capitol riots, to track them down and arrest them and then, and then present a case whereby they can be prosecuted because of their social media posts. Uh, they're very public posts on Facebook, Twitter, Parler. So I have some sense of if you, if you close off all those avenues and you, you, you push them into darker corners of the web, you're just going to have a harder time um, apprehending and then prosecuting. Yeah. Greg, I want to I put the same question I just put to Robbie to you. We were yeah. talking about moderation on social media channels. And on Twitter, you're kind of vocal in thinking that these social media channels should use the First Amendment standards and thinking and philosophy to guide, to guide yeah. their moderation. I try to be extremely strategies. clear on that. And I always try to say, no, 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 you don't have to. But you have a well thought out body of philosophy, frankly, on how you have free speech in the real world that has dealt with things like what's the definition of incitement? What's the definition of harassment? What's the definition of, of libel? All this kind of stuff. And I, I actually tweeted this out and um, Maddie Iglesias said, well, that sounds kind of ridiculous. You're saying Instagram has to have porno more pornography. And I'm like, OK, I'm going to have to sit down and write this down because <laughs> level one, what kind of form have you decided to be like? It it really is a surprisingly um, thoughtful, it you know, uh, and practical uh, way to na navigate a lot of these issues. It provides insight into what incitement is. It provides insight into um, what you can do with indecency. You know, for example, uh, people don't necessarily know that within First Amendment law, having rules that say that you have to put, you know, um, that you can put the, the equivalent of a dirty magazine behind a, 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 a shield, essentially, like that's permissible. Then there are ways to, to do it where you can sort of draw wisdom um, from existing First Amendment jurisprudence. And why am I saying this? Not just because I, I like the First Amendment, but because the, what, what the other result is, is it's just going to be viewpoint discrimination. It's, it's just going to be um, or whoever is the loudest or just dumb luck who ends up getting canceled. So you've got to have some idea. Um, and since we already have a body of well thought out uh, philosophy on this stuff, I, my, my recommendation is to use it. And, and also uh, to sort of amplify uh, a point that Robbie was making, um, the idea that this is the thing that we're being faced with in social media. We're seeing what we're really like to a degree. And by we, I mean the species. Um, and we don't like it uh, to a degree. Uh, and I've been writing about this for a long time. I call this my lab in the looking glass uh, metaphor for, for, for the value of free speech. The simple value of freedom of expression is to know what people really think and why. And it's absolutely essential, whether from a democratic standpoint or from a scientific standpoint, to know what makes people tick. It, and there's something kind of primitive about if we don't let um, you know, people have these opinions, somehow they'll go away. That's not what happens. Just like Robbie was saying, um, and the work of Cass Sunstein is interesting here, but also uh, many other studies on group polarization, is sometimes when in First Amendment law, we talk about it as if we're going to drive this speech underground. And it just sounds like this gauzy kind of like, I don't really know what that means. Do they become trolls? Like, wh what is this? But really, when you look at it, when you get people talking to each other who already agree with each other, um, they tend to become more radicalized in the position of that group, both because they have more arguments on their side, but also because this tribal switch kicks in where they think of this as an uh, of, of an us versus them. A lot of these efforts to actually clamp down on this, it's just going to make some of these it, it's going to end up making some of these people crazier. And, and Definitely when it comes to things like incitement, things that get closer to and this is something that, that First Amendment law does pretty well. 
a pure opinion is the is the most clearly protected of all different kinds of speech. The more you get into patterns of behavior, trying to harass, for example, or patterns of behavior, trying to organize violent uh, 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 violent rallies or conspiracy to commit crimes, that the, the, the law also has understandings of that. Um, but to a degree, I think that uh, accepting uh, to have something that's that, that would actually be an effective public square for humanity or for the nation, there's no way to do that honestly without it being, to many people, highly offensive. Greg, do you think it's realistic to expect that Facebook's 15,000 moderators or Twitter's 1,500 moderators will ha- can have a, an understanding of the First Amendment that allows them to make moderation decisions, you know, guided I'm going to try to break it down uh, after um, that interaction with with Maddie. And of course, I have a million other things I need to do. Um, But I want to make an argument for how it can be helpful. Does it solve all of your problems? Of course not. But there are some pretty simple rules of thumb. And I I just hit upon the, the, the number one one, which is viewpoint discrimination, a very good rule for anything that wants to focus as a um, uh, to, to function kind of like a public square is you can't exclude somebody just because you don't like their point of view. It has to be something other than that. I also go to the bedrock principle that essentially you can't ban something just because it's offensive. Um, but you can have, uh, so, so I do think that you can actually break a lot of these things down to, to relatively simple, simple rules of thumb that could at least help, not solve, but help people figure out what can, what stays and what can go. Yeah. And, and the thing with, mad at Iglesias that I I didn't think he was quite getting. You know, there are things like videos of beheadings, you know, or p- pornographic videos where it it's easier to moderate that content than it is to moderate content that you're labeling hate speech or that is incitement to violence. Those are where the real the rubber hits the road for I think a lot of these social media companies and where the challenges come in. And that's I think where the first amendment guideposts that you're talking about can be of use so so as to avoid the double standards that you're seeing anytime you want to venture into those areas and not follow the First Amendment standards, which were essentially created to avoid double standards and to avoid well, to, to avoid discrimination. That, that's one of the things that, that I find funny about. sometimes when people talk about bias as if it's this recent discovery of human nature that, oh, we've, now we've discovered that we're biased. The founders knew we were biased and they fit, they've set up systems that actually allow uh, individual bias to exist without the entire system falling apart. Anyway, I've been talking way too much. Robbie, I want to hear more about this book. I'm really excited for it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And I, so I agree with What's you. A, does the book have a name? Uh, <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah, well, the, the, name of the book. It's called Tech Panic, uh, although I'm hesitant to even to say that because I, with my last book, I uh, underwent quite a few name changes <laughs> before we had it actually published, but it's called Tech okay, Panic. Cool. Doesn't didn't your last book have the panic word panic? Attack. Yeah, panic we attack. have a panic theme. Ah, so you're building a brand. Yeah. <laughs> Such a calming kind of uh, trilogy here. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've actually have your book. I'm in Fire's DC office right now on my bookcase, but it's blocked by uh, my shampoo, <laughs> so I can't actually. Are see you the living name in your? Oh, you're at your home studio. Are you living in your? Office? No, we're in the office right now, and and we are. Uh, oh, okay. uh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, reason, um, Matt. Oh my God, what's his last name? Um, they. Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh made fun of me because I didn't have, I only had my own book on my bookshelf and I'm like, dude, we're barely in these offices anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, so section 230 has been in the conversation for a long time. Was there any precipitating event, Robbie, that led you to 
decide you needed to dive in? Was it just kind of the frustration with the conversation around it and the lack of understanding standing that seemed to go into those conversations? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's basically that I, I, I find, I think I'm often in conversation with people on the right, uh, not because I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a libertarian, so I have views that overlap with the right and with the left, but I'm on, I'm on conservative talk radio. I'm on Fox news periodically. So I, I think I'm often talking to people on the right. I think I understand them broadly. Uh, and I, I became increasingly frustrated with what seemed like some basic principles that libertarians and conservatives share about free association and, and private entities. You know, I, I d- defended, right, the, the, the right of the Christian uh, bake shop not to have to, you know, bake a cake for a same-sex marriage or whatever. You know, that kind of thing is something I've defended on civil libertarian grounds and conservatives agreed. But now they're saying, okay, so the, the, the cake baker shouldn't have to, the government can't force them to, it's, it's wrong for the government to force them to do this. But the government should force Facebook to put back on this content it took down. Don't you see that as as sort of an ideological um, uh, hypocrisy? And so then I wanted to better understand where those arguments were coming from. And then many of them did rest on this wrongful understanding of 230, where they're saying, well, but then they should be subject to all this liability because Section 230 says they have to be, uh, you know, they can't do moderation because then they're a publisher if they do that. And but that's not what Section 230 says. It says you can do moderation. It exists to actually settle that. Uh, so it, ex- it, it, it came into being. Congress uh, uh, stitched it together because going back into the, the early 1990s, there were two forum kind of messaging board type companies, CompuServe and Prodigy. And one of them, um, uh, I think it was uh, CompuServe, did, uh, did uh, no, was not doing moderation. And they had some, some, someone sued them for a libelous statement on that they that had appeared there. And the court said, yeah, well, that's not CompuServe's problem because they're, they're, they're just the platform. They're not doing any moderation, right? And then Prodigy, got, which did do some moderation, got sued under similar circumstances. And there the court said, well, you're moderating some stuff, so maybe you're more like a traditional publisher. So yeah, you should be held liable. And 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 the lawmakers decided, well, that that's, the op- that's not what we want. We don't want platforms to say, well, we can't moderate anything because then we could be subject to, 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 to risk. So that's how Section 230 exists to solve that problem so that you can have an entity as big as Facebook or Twitter and make, you know, broadly trying to make these decisions and not taking on this huge risk, which is good, which is generally good. Uh, these companies couldn't really could not exist at, at, the, at the scale they're at. I mean, can you imagine so much of what conservatives complain about? And yes, I agree. Stuff gets taken down when it shouldn't be taken down. But if you... If, if the if if Twitter could be sued, um, it, it, if, if it could if it be opened up to so many potentially frivolous lawsuits, they would they might have to vet your content before it goes live. You might have to have that happen to you a certain number of times before you receive some kind of verification. Maybe only blue checkmark people can post it. Will um, how would this would this is very obvious to me. This kind of additional gatekeeping and verification would not benefit. Um, the, the the conservatives would not benefit uh, benefit the viewpoint that is not broadly shared by the leaders of the company or the moderators, the kind of progressive Silicon Valley. I see this so much in my work, and and I feel like you have to explain to this to people on, on the right and the left all the time. So you have to remind people the very simple fact: you know, these are going to be enforced by people, right? <laughs> like, the, like once you create like the, the the perfect rule, and and who are who's actually going to be enforcing these? Because because I, I see sometimes. 
this this idea, you know, like dealing with issues um, relating to anti-Semitism, for example, on campus. You, I, I've dealt with um, a lot of well-meaning people who want to deal with the with anti-Semitism on campus, um, and they think that they can pass a rule against it, and that's going to uh, fix the fix this thing, and they forget that someone's actually going to be enforcing it. So, th- and and the and that ultimately, in a lot of cases, there was one case where they tried to do this, and the the person that the campus ended up putting in charge was the single most anti-Israel person on the entire campus. And, and for for those of us who are like <laughs> First Amendment people, like, well, duh, you know, like like what do you what do you think's gonna what do you think's gonna happen? So that's actually that actually does that's essentially my question. What do they think's going to happen when they get rid of two thirty? Like, wh- wh- what's the positive end they think's going to happen there? If if it's just so they're right that this will be a nightmare for Twitter. So if your only goal is to you're mad at Twitter and you want to hurt them, then okay, then this makes sense. Like it'd be the same as passing a law that says Twitter has to shut down or something, or a constitutional amendment, <laughs> amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Um, if if you like me want to just. Uh, broaden the amount, the the opportunities for speech. Then you should very much be against this. I, I'm always trying to convince them that because uh, also te- you know big tech or whatever new media, the social media is always being lumped in with the media more generally. And I keep trying to tell conservatives that whatever biases exist in social media pale in comparison, which you which you know, to the biases in the traditional media. Like, okay, I get that occasionally Facebook takes down conservative content that you don't want taken down and that sometimes I think shouldn't be taken down. But like the New York Times regrets and will never again run an op-ed by a Republican senator making a making a, an argument I didn't agree with, the, the Tom Cotton op-ed, but an argument that millions of people agreed with. And they are, they will never again do that. Um, so, so you want to you want to add more gatekeepers. You want to make the social media environment more like the environment of the traditional media. Don't you see how that would be bad for you? I mean, you you like I'm watching the the, the Republican National Convention, right? And they're railing speaker after speaker railing against big tech. And I'm thinking, I am watching this convention. This is being live streamed on YouTube, on Facebook, on Twitter. No interruptions. Um, if I wanted to watch it on cable news, even Fox News, <laughs> cut away from it constantly um, to add clarifications from other people. If you're watching it on CNN or MSNBC, they were fact-checking in, in, in live. Um, on, on the tech platforms, I could just watch it uninterrupted. Like, don't do you, you want to add more traditional media filters for these things? That is so self-defeating. It's really self-defeating for you. And that's a big part of the argument I'm making in the book. Is there any precedent, and Greg, you might be the best person to ask this. We were talking about public utilities before. There's there's a series of cases from decades ago involving malls, public malls. And and they uh, some courts had held that they were uh, – Public fora, and therefore couldn't engage in viewpoint discrimination on their on their premises. Do does any of the thinking surrounding those those and, and when I say public malls, I mean places of public accommodation where the public goes, uh, but they're privately owned. So should the thinking about the malls be similar to how we think about the social media companies? And as a result, do you think there is a public forum argument or a limited public forum argument for the social media companies where whereby the courts can kind of hold that they can't engage in viewpoint I was looking into that question way back in 1999 when I was interning at the ACLU that that was one, one, one of my main <laughs> things and in uh, California in state law we have something called or not we anymore I guess I've been in California for a long time something called the prune yard doctrine which basically said um, it was a strong version of the open areas in a a private space that's treated like a public space 
um, can actually become uh, essentially public forums. Uh, I, I kind of gave up on fora uh, uh, to say forums now. Um, and I don't know how well it's fared, you know, in, in the past couple of decades, but there's also a case, you know, called Marsh v. Alabama, you know, which is about whether or not a company town, um, oh, wait, actually, whether or not a company town could actually be treated like a public forum if it functions in the way of a public forum. So there, there is, um, there is existing case law that, that some people think that that's kind of the solution is essentially to have this really uh, to transform some of these things that we treat like public squares into de facto or, or, or actually in, in realsies, um, uh, public, uh, public forums. Um, but my, that's kind of, that's kind of hard to imagine. Like the, the idea of a public space um, that would be run, I presume by a private company, but nonetheless would only have the limit, would have basically only the limits that you could have at a traditional public forum, like a, like a park. Um, it's hard to imagine that that actually working out. Um, so yeah, there's some interesting there's some interesting thought on how to solve this. Um, and the the big legal solutions, um, I don't find any of them too uh, too satisfactory. Now, of course, the, one of the things that really is is a big um, uh, uh, is a big frustration to my idea of, of using some of the First Amendment doctrine to guide you is that you've got you know, other countries, uh, and you've got the European Union that's passing rules that it wants, like things, things like the absolutely one of one of my least favorite laws in the history of the planet is the right to be forgotten. I think it's just absolutely against the project of human knowledge. I think it's this it's it's a EU uh, regulation um, that that makes it uh, very much in uh, uh, Google's interest to hide links to stories that you think are invading your privacy. Um, basically with, with no serious argument uh, on the utility of keeping them. And those rules are supposed to apply globally. This is just, in my opinion, just one of the, a, a lot of the worst laws when it comes to freedom of speech, like the real innovation and terrible ideas and censorship have been coming out of um, the, the, the European Union and, 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 and countries over there. So now you've got tech companies that have to actually contend with, uh, with um, countries uh, outside of the US that are trying to limit what you're able to say on the internet. So basically at the moment, I think everything's a huge mess at, at the minimum when we're trying to figure out what, a, what incitement actually means, for example, or uh, threats actually mean, I think the law uh, actually is very clear and helpful. Um, but the ultimate, where this actually ends, good Lord, where, where do you, where do you think we're headed, Robbie? Well, the, so right. The, the, I mean, you probably know this even better than I do. The, the first amendment uh, I, I think really does prevent something like right to be forgotten uh, which is popular in Europe from being from 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 coming to our shores. Uh, the First Amendment is a is a pretty ironclad defense uh, against a lot of these bad ideas to regulate speech. Uh, it, it's it's interesting because I do think social media creates some new headaches regarding the trade the trade off between privacy and free speech. That I that I'm ninety nine percent of the time I'm on uh, the free speech side. Occasionally, I think maybe there need not there's just necessarily be a new law about it or new legal policy, but that that social media companies, because they're private companies, can be empowered to do um, some moderation in 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 service of the protection of privacy that we that you wouldn't necessarily have in other contexts. Um, I, I, I actually I was thinking a lot about like um, uh, like revenge porn type stuff or people's you know personal sexual images getting leaked. 
And I, I, it, it looks like tech companies are developing ways to, the image has a digital footprint and they, I actually think Facebook tested out a, a program where you could, you could send to Facebook if you were, that this was happening to you, your, uh, your, uh, your sexual images, someone else had them and they were going to be posted somewhere. You can give them to Facebook and then Facebook can create a digital footprint. And then if someone tries to post that anywhere, they're not going to be able to. Um, so that kind of innovation on the parts of the platforms to to combat some of the the, the real uh, case scenarios of privacy violations um, is something uh, you know is something to think about, uh, but not, it doesn't necessarily involve some new um, bunch of laws. Yeah, well, I mean, you can only really innovate insofar as the most censorious or aggressive privacy countries out there in the world allow you to, right? Like if you're going to have a global platform and you want your platform to cross borders in India, uh, for example, they ban hate speech and blasphemy. So you, you, you have to police what they can see in India and you have to write your hate speech and blasphemy codes to meet that country's standards. Yeah, well, right? and you have to decide how much of that you can do and feel morally okay with. Doing. I mean, that's been the big question with China, right? Google uh, was not in China for a long time. And then they thought about going back in with a version of Google that would be that would be okay, that would meet the approval of the Communist Party of China, whereby you couldn't do Google searches for you know like the most mundane kind of freedom-seeking stuff. And the question be, becomes: Should Google do that? I mean, obviously, they again they're a private company, so if they want to provide some people the the, and it's not their fault, right? It's the Communist Party's fault that they have that they they, they should be opposed and overthrown or whatever. Um, but should you know should Google is it better even not even from from the standpoint of maximizing human freedom? Is it better for Google to give the people of China some internet access and they might? Somehow they might still, it might be better than having no access to Google at all. I, these are, those are difficult. I think that's a kind of difficult question to decide how much uh, of, uh, how much of, how many concessions are too many concessions where you should say, no, we will not go along with what this authoritarian government wants. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I, we're coming up on, I think we're at 45 minutes now, but I, I have a couple of questions for you and Greg that I want to close out with. Prior to the events of last week, there was a conversation for the last year about cancel culture. And Greg and I had written an op-ed together about cancel culture and higher education. Is what's happening right now with the tech companies and their deplatformings a form of cancel culture? I mean, you have the, you know, not even just the tech companies. You have the PGA, for example, announcing it's no longer going to host its 2022 championship at Donald Trump's New Jersey golf course. Yeah. I, it depends how you define cancel culture and cancel culture has become a little bit obnoxious in how broadly it's defined. Whereas anything that happens that someone doesn't like is an example of cancel culture. I try to constrain its definition to the most sympathetic cases, which are people being called out like for things they said or did when they were teenagers and they're being like their lives ruined 20 years later or something. Um, but obviously you can, you can draw it broader. I, I think what's, so I think what's happening with, with this total sort of shunning and disassociation is on some fronts worrying. I don't know if cancel culture is the right way to frame it. 
But uh, I, I, like I said earlier, I have concerns about what happened with Parler while still thinking that private companies should be allowed to associate or disassociate as they as they see fit. Yeah, I try. I, I'm I'm the, the same way. I try to keep cancel culture to um, a relatively sort of discrete phenomena, um, but it's definitely something that that it was social media empowered. Um, right. That uh, that that's basically when I explain it as most simplest. Uh, sometime after 2012, 2013, there was an uptick in people getting together on social media and trying to get people disinvited, get them fired, uh, get them uh, uh, get their admission to a college revoked. And I'd never seen anything like that before. And I, and I was talking about this thing going back to, you know, 2014, when I first when I was still writing for the Huffington Post, I was writing about like, like what's like, kind of like trying to figure out what's going on. We did a movie called Can We Take a Joke, which I'm really proud of. We did it with Ted Balaker um, talking about the threat to comedy from what didn't have a name yet. But we were talking about cancel culture. We were talking about the I even have like I, I have a blog called The Eternally Radical Idea, where I even have a list of sort of cancel culture reading. And the first book on it, as far as like the one that, that that's, that really diagnosed this was um, Ron Johnson's um, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. John, I can, John I, Ronson. I will, I will never get confusing. that right. Um, <laughs> the... Um, so I have a, I have a list of books that are like that, but yeah, this is a dis- d- discrete phenomenon um, that is only possible when you can kind of create sort of uh, sort of Twitter mobs, and it gets applied in ways that I that I don't think are necessarily appropriate. You know, people were talking about like was the mob uh, uh, attacking the the Capitol like a cancel culture cancel culture? I'm like, no, that was a criminal mob, you know, in which everybody should be prosecuted who participated in the criminal parts of it. Um, yeah, that is the same like when people say over the summer, well, racism is a disease that must be fought. And I'm like, I don't like that metaphor right now as there's like a literal <laughs> pandemic. Racism is bad. We should oppose racism, yeah. but like don't pretend because then there's all this rhetoric about like it. We, we, but we don't know exactly how to solve like or, or, or decrease racism in a society in the same way that we know how to cure diseases. Yeah. So you're creating some kind of certainty about the tactics to be used when you're using that framing that is not warranted. Yeah. We, and it's the same for mob, for mob versus literal. Oh, and, and, and a good plug for, uh, for, for reason. Um, uh, me and Ken White did a debate on sort of cancel culture and uh, whether or not free speech culture is more important than free speech law. I'm of the opinion that free speech law generates, uh, uh, sorry, free speech culture is where free speech law comes from. And if you don't have a strong free speech culture, your free speech law will will wither or become meaningless. And it was and it was actually really great to have an opportunity to hash it out with someone as smart as Ken. Because and so I really would point people back back to uh, back to that discussion. The I, I want to ask about you know, we've been talking about the digital world and social media and the tech giants, but I want to ask about the now quaint analog version of the public square, which is, you know, just gathering in protest. Is there any concern that the events of last week are going to lead to restrictions on gathering, particularly here in the United States that go too far? Uh, I am super concerned that Patriot Act 2 is going to be just as bad as Patriot Act 1. Um, there's, you know, there's nothing lawmakers like more than overreacting to something bad and passing all sorts of like civil liberties violate, especially, and in this case with the, with Congress having been the actual like literal target, some of them fearing for their safety, uh, again, in a situation that was horrendous and terrible and despicable and should be condemned and people should be held accountable. So I'm not, I, I'm not underplaying how bad it was at all. I think it was like really awful. I was there. It was so bad, but we have, but Robbie, I, 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 yeah. 
since you were there, was there a contingent of the group that didn't storm the Capitol that were, was kind of surprised by what's happening and that would really did come in your estimation to just engage in protected First Amendment activities? I think the overwhelming majority of people there were, were absolutely there to participate in First Amendment protected activities, no question. But there were thousands and thousands of people there. I, I don't know exactly if there's an estimate. There was more than 3,000, probably fewer than 10,000 people there. Um, and again, most of them doing a kind of protesting that is just like the Black Lives Matter, the racial justice protests we saw from over the summer. But also just like those, there was a small there was a smaller number. In this case, it's tens or perhaps hundreds of people um, who were who smashed windows, who climbed the sides of the building, who brawled with police officers, who ransacked people's offices, uh, who were absolutely engaged in, by any definition, criminal, mob, violent behavior. And those people should, I, I, I think they should be held accountable under the currently existing laws. We don't need, for the love of God, the last thing we need is like another law against terrorism. It is illegal to do this already. We don't need more laws for this. It's, it's interesting. I just wanted to add there, though, that, um, you know, I got to see it from, because I live by there, and I, I, I got to see it from like driving back from a medical procedure at a GW, how big the crowd was overall. The crowd was absolutely colossal. And I, and I, I don't, I, I, I assume you could still have a relatively small percentage of people being the ones attacking the Capitol. But the sheer, but if you look at the videos, just the sheer number of people who were actually hitting the Capitol at that point, I, it looked more like thousands to me. I mean, like it, it was, it was big. Um, and I, and so I, I actually, you know, since I live on the Hill and I run into the Capitol Hill police officers sometimes, you know, like the, I can't, I can't blame at least some of them for feeling completely, uh, completely overwhelmed in that circumstance, but nonetheless, and I said this when Berkeley happened, I was extremely clear when, when there was the, the Milo riots. Um, if you don't punish the people who engage in this behavior severely, it's practically inviting more of it. You have to have a very bright line rule. You should have great, great tolerance for opinion, even opinions that piss you off, but zero tolerance for violence. Yeah. And, and, you know, behavior that gets rewarded gets repeated and there needs to be enough of a show of police force to prevent violence. Greg, as you know, you know, we created Mighty Ira, uh, the documentary about former ACLU executive director Ira Glasser. And if you look at the footage surrounding the police presence to uh, defend the rights of the neo-Nazis to march in the, the city of Chicago surrounding the Skokie affair, it was it was incredible. I think the city of Chicago brought in every police officer they had. The line of police officers was – it looked like they had more police presence in Chicago surrounding the Skokie affair than they did at the United States Capitol uh, last week. So, you know, and, and then this is nothing new for First Amendment advocates or free speech advocates. I mean, we've always said that the police need to do their job in order to prevent violence. And, and, and so it was just a shame that there wasn't a show of police force to prevent the violence that happened the other day. And, and it was a very, very difficult situation. The last question here, closing question, the effects of polarization by the the effects on polarization by the tech companies and the social media companies' recent recent moves. Do you think it's going to get worse as a result of what they've done? Do you think they're actually helping the situation? Uh, I, I think they're not. I, I think it, 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 it their actions are likely to cause more polarization. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm not sure. I, I think uh, I think social media gets a lot of blame for increased polarization. That I'm not entirely sure. If it's, I think polarization might just be happening 
roughly along the same time frame as the rise of social media. Certainly there's, there's some blame, um, but people, it, it looks like every time you, I, I mean, I've reviewed a couple of these kinds of studies for the research for my book. And every time you really dial down and look at it, it seems like social media correlates with people seeing a broader range of information rather than the kind of siloing effect where you're just in some kind of like-minded bubble that we're always, that we're reasonably warning people against. I'm not actually sure that effect is as pronounced as it sometimes sounds like. I mean, you go back to- But can it be just as bad? I mean, some people argued that seeing too much information can be bad and can be confusing. Well, and maybe that's true, but I don't think we want to go back to a time where, what, there were just, I was getting all my information from three news channels and two newspapers and whatever they thought. And probably people then didn't even realize how, how, or the, the, you know, the biased perspective that that's all they're getting. Now there's- there's podcasts as well. There's uh, newsletters. There's social media. There's there's a million more channels. There's there's so there is an overwhelmingly uh, more information to consume, um, and it's messy and it's unpredictable and it has some nasty side effects sometimes. But uh, I'm not sure that what that it's it's necessarily explains what's wrong with our society or even that it's a on net contributing to to ill effects. Greg, when I first started at FIRE, you were incredibly concerned about oh, yeah. polarization in America, and you wrote about it in uh, Unlearning Liberty, your 2012 book. I mean, your concerns about polarization at that point and the polarization that we all experienced in the world in 2012 also seems quite quaint <laughs> compared to 2020 America, 2021 America. Uh, I, I'm definitely, I, I mean, this is a, a, a rare point of disagreement between me and Robbie. I think social media plays a huge role. I think it's a fundamental shift um, in the way we communicate with each other. Uh, and when it comes to the issue of blame, I don't really care all that much about, you know, it's their fault. But I do think that that's when you have this this many people able to communicate with this speed um, uh, to this many people at the same time, it's there's nothing there's never been anything like it. it it's such an explosion. And the book that I that I read recently that um uh, that really got me thinking more about. Uh, how it is such a what what it actually means is uh, Martin Gurry's Revolt of the Public, um, which I which I, I'm amazed that I j- just read now, which focuses a lot on the Arab Spring and about the role of social media and how there would have been no Arab Spring in the social uh, due to that. Now Gurry and I couldn't agree less on politics. I think he's way too easy on Trump, and uh, and honestly, despite Art firefighting him too hard on Obama. Um, but he believes in negation, like that, that essentially the only thing that you can do with this level of information is destructive, that, 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 because it's really easy to tear people down. And this is a whole perfect rhetorical fortress argument that I make a lot. and I'm going to be writing a lot more on. It's very easy to point out hypocrisy because or, or, or all, you have to, all you have to do is claim it. Um, uh, this is a technology for just uh, actually decreasing the amount of stuff we know. And it's very destructive initially. My hope is that just like with the printing press, which, you know, once it started being used to spread information about uh, re- religion, you know, w- once it became part of the Protestant Ref- uh, uh, Reformation, which would the Protestant Reformation was impossible without it because, you know, people like Jan Hus tried to have the Protestant Reformation 100 years before and was just burned at the stake. But this is this is the one of the most disruptive technological developments in frankly, human history. And right now, all it's all it seems capable of doing is tearing things down, not actually building stuff. I'm hoping that on the other side of this negation, there's something that we productive that we can actually do with it. But right now, people are 
confused. They believe in truth less. It, 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 it's it's an overwhelming shift that we haven't adapted to yet. So I so I, I disagree with Robbie. I think this is incredibly significant. I think it contributes. Now, this is a genuine point of disagreement. <laughs> we'll have to do this again. <laughs> I think this is huge. Maybe we can find a point oh, of yeah. agreement here. This is okay. the actual closing question. Do we think January 6th was the climax and it'll get better from here? Or do we think it's going to get worse here? Robbie, you go first. Um, I am hoping that was the season finale and uh, maybe we can do a reboot and <laughs> move on to something else. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I think that was I, I, probably that was the worst of it. Um, I, I also think if, if specifically if we're talking about D.C., maybe other places as well, we'll be more prepared. They'll have more police on the ground. And I think it's unlikely uh, or it's less likely. I mean, it's certainly not impossible uh, that this kind of thing uh, would happen again in the in the immediate future because I think they'll be more prepared. Uh, I think it's going to get worse. Um, I think it's going to get worse uh, at least until COVID's over. Um, you know, it may, maybe things will be fine by enough people being vaccinated by March, but in the short term, within the next you know several weeks, I I I, I and I'm temperamentally an optimist, but. I th- and I don't. Th- and of course, what's going to happen next isn't necessarily going to look just like the you know storming of the Capitol because we have like more more uh, police there. But uh, I'm very anxious, um, and I, and I think we're heading into a very dangerous stretch. Well, I guess I wasn't able to end <laughs> on a point of agreement. So we end I with two Robbie. points of dis- disagreement. <laughs> I love you, man. <laughs> well, we'll leave, we'll leave with that kumbaya moment. Robbie, thanks for coming on the show. Greg, really thanks as always for Robbie. being here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and Robbie, your book is what? Oh yeah, when is it due? Uh, we're, not sure. uh, we're not sure yet. Sometime, sometime this year. Maybe we can see each other in person. Okay. Have, have a stiff drink. That would be fantastic. <laughs> I look forward to that very Take much. Care. All right. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So To Speak by following us on Twitter, at least for now, at twitter.com slash free speech talk, or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take feedback at so to speak at thefire.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. It helps attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, (laughs) thanks again for listening.